Good evening, everyone. My name is Simon Barrett, and this is another edition of Journey into Justice, a chance to uh, delve into uh, the legal system, although uh, you never quite know what you're going to end up with with on this program. As always, I'm joined by my very good friend, attorney and author, Mark Bellow. Mark, welcome to the program. Simon, as always, good to be with you. <laughs> so, this week, um, we have a real hodgepodge of uh, subjects, but I think all of them are... Uh, are worthy of discussion. Um, I, I believe uh, the Catholic Church um, spent three weeks in uh, Brazil, um, particularly the uh, Amazon area. Apparently, they, they have a bit of an issue. Um, they don't have enough priests in the uh, down there, and uh, one of the ideas being floated around was to make um, um, it possible for a priest uh, to be uh, a married man. One of the ideas not floated around was to allow women to uh, um, become priests, which actually annoyed a whole bunch of nuns. Um, but, of course, they're far too polite to uh, protest, so they, they were just kind of silent and uh, grimaced through the whole thing. Um what was your thoughts, Mark? Do, do you think the Catholic uh, Church needs uh, married uh, priests? Well, I, I, I've got a very long-winded answer, as usual. But, but <laughs> sure, uh, we'll have at it. Let's let's put this in context for the people. Um, many many people probably don't know. But as a practicing lawyer, I handled cases involving pedophile priests and the molestation of young boys by those priests. And I have a particular, I don't want to say expertise in the subject, but I followed the subject uh, for a long time, uh, promised myself that toward the end of my career, where, where I'm at now, I would write a book about the subject. And uh, about three years ago, I wrote the first edition of a novel that is being re-released uh, at a very attractive price, by the way, 99 cents, um, uh, called Betrayal of Faith. And Betrayal of Faith is a fictional portrayal of uh, how a case 
of clergy abuse against uh, teenage boys might play out in the civil justice system and in the criminal justice system. Uh, if I recall correctly, Simon, you've read the book. Um, I have. It's it's a, a kind of an interesting study in in uh, predominantly how the civil justice system handles it, um, and also uh, my own view as to how the church uh, handles these cases, and um, the way I depict it in the book is. Hiding behind the church is this group called the Coalition, uh, whose function it is to silence the victims and protect the priests. And uh, that's how it felt to me as a young lawyer handling a case like this and encountering uh, what I'm sure... Congress is encountering right now uh, with regard to obstruction and denials and cover-ups and trying to keep this quiet. So uh, it's quite an interesting book. Now, uh, one of the issues that comes up, not only in the book, but in uh, real life, is this issue of celibacy and the priesthood. And um, my take on married priests is um, more of a lay opinion than it is a professional opinion. Uh, I'm not speaking as a lawyer. Uh, even though I am one, I'm certainly not speaking as an expert in uh, clergy issues other than perhaps uh, someone who's handled uh, this type of case. But I find it difficult to believe that uh, if, if we're discussing this in the context of the book, I find it difficult to believe that uh, pedophilia or child abuse um, has a relationship to celibacy. Um, now, you may be surprised at my answer. Um, and, I, I, you know, as I research this for tonight's show, I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised a little bit of about my answer as well. Um, but the the issue is uh, what makes a pedophile? And the answer is uh, some kind of mental health issue related to a particular person and that particular person's mental health not whether or not he's married, whether or not he has, um, whether he's gay or whether he's straight. Uh, I don't think it's related to any of that. Um, 
having said that, what I do think is that the celibacy issue um, creates a sexual environment, if you will, that right. may that may create uh, uh, a clandestine um, I'm, I'm trying to I'm struggling for words uh, if you if you if you if you may create Right. It, it may. Be, if you're required to be celebrate, celibate, it may be a situation where if you if you do want to be sexually active, you're going to have to cover it up or hide it. And I think that there's some relationship to that. Uh, it, it, uh, no, no scientific uh, evidence, but some relationship between the two. Uh, having right. said all of that, if you look at if you look at if you look at Celibacy, uh, pedophilia, the Catholic Church, and any other church, mosque, or synagogue, I don't think you're going to find that there's a higher percentage of celibate priests who are criminal pedophiles than you will find in any other segment of society. So from, from that standpoint, I just, um, I, I guess my conclusion would be that no, celibacy in and of itself does not cause pedophilia. And that's that seems to be where this goes when people... Uh, discuss the issue of whether a priest can be married. I have other thoughts on the issue, but I uh, I don't want to monopolize the discussion if you've got uh, some comments you want to make. Well, you know, I, I'm sort of in agreement with you. I, I don't believe that celibacy uh, causes pedophilia, but I, I also think that celibacy um, create, may create an environment where pedophilia um, looks like uh, the, the only good option. Um, you know, so I, I'm in agreement with you. The, 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 the statistics. The statistics that demonstrate that ninety-six percent of all priests are normal, functioning human beings, and are not pedophiles. We're talking about four percent. Four percent of the priesthood. Um, I would venture to guess that something in that neighborhood, two to four percent of married people, 
are pedophilias. So uh, I guess that I guess that's kind of my point. I, I just um, I just don't see that the percentages uh, bear out the relationship between celibacy and pedophilia. Now, having said that, um, ministers, rabbis, um, imams, uh, clergy leaders in all denominations can marry, and they do their job very effectively. Uh, the the um, story for for uh, celibacy the the um, the push for celibacy uh, or the concept of it is so that a person who is a priest uh, can minister to the faithful without um, any kind of emotional attachment to that person um, he can't love that person the way uh, someone who is attracted to that person might be. Um, and therefore, there's a detached uh, ministerial uh, approach, and uh, he can be much more objective and effective. That's the uh, argument for celibacy. Uh, arguing that suggests that the non-celibate clergy person is not effective, and we all know if if we're not Catholic, and um, many people many people who are religious are not Catholic. Uh, we all know and love our religious leaders. And they have wives and children. So I, I just, um, I don't think it has any relationship uh, to pedophilia, but I do think um, it's high time that the church reconsider, um, uh, if only for the reason you give. It, it opens up the the talent pool. Uh, to people who wouldn't consider the occupation because uh, they want to lead a non-celibate life. So you're, you've got a much greater pot to pick talented people from uh, if you open it up to uh, people who are um, unwilling to be celibate. I think that's the best reason for it. Right. As I said, this particular um, meeting was in uh, Brazil and involved the uh, Amazon uh, area. Um, right. Uh, I, I think it's probably 50-50 um, whether or not um, it, it'll that they will allow. Um, married men, and uh, the the wording was something along the lines of 
only men of, uh, you know, high moral uh, whatever, you know, might be considered, um, which I, I thought was all kind of, uh, you know, hocus-pocus. Um, but the, the other uh, item that wasn't on the agenda was the subject of women becoming priests. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on whether at any time the uh, Catholic Church might uh, permit uh, uh, women to um, become uh, priests rather than nuns? Well, you, you, the way you asked the question specific to the Catholic Church, the answer is no. I think the Catholic Church has a serious uh, problem uh, bringing itself into the 21st century and realizing that um, as opposed to our founding fathers here in America that, quote, all men are created equal, I think the better uh, phraseology in the 21st century is all people are created equal, um, men and women. And um, as a Jewish person, I can tell you that uh, there are uh, female rabbis and female rabbis uh, that I've encountered in my uh, religious life are very solid and effective religious leaders, uh, just as women are in every other field. Uh, the law used to be a male-dominated field. Uh, today, I think you're going to find, I, I, I haven't researched the issue, but I would bet that more than half of the uh, students in law school are female, and I would bet that close to half of the, the current uh, group of American lawyers are female, and uh, they do a very effective job, as do uh, female judges. So uh, this this notion that that uh, women. Um, are somehow unable to do the things that men can do, putting aside physical attributes, um, I think is absurd. And that's how I feel about uh, female priests. I, I see no reason why a female uh, could not be an effective priest. Now, um, <laughs> you know, if you take this celibacy issue, uh, the, the biggest knock on employing a woman uh, over the years has been, well, women uh, bear children and and are better at, at, than men at raising them. Um, the first the first uh, aspect of that is obviously true. Women bear children. Men do not. Women take take better care of children. I would 
imagine, depends on the man and the woman who are raising them, uh, just like anything else. But the interesting thing about celibacy, if you think about it, is it's the argument for women priests. If a woman is required to be celibate, she's not going to get pregnant. She's not going to have to raise a family. And if any church or synagogue or place of worship or religion should embrace the concept of female clergymen, it's the Catholic Church who prevents them from being sexually active and having children. Right. Okay. So it's, a, it's, I, it's kind I, of a strange. It's kind of a strange thing that that they would feel that way. Yes. Okay. It's, like, um, it, it's blunt, bluntly, bluntly, Simon. It's it's sex. It's a sexist policy. Yes, it certainly is. Um. Okay. Let's move on to um, a, a different topic. Um. You posed a question to me uh, in email today, and it, it was a simple question. Are politicians permitted to have a private life? And, and I, I thought about it, and you know, I mulled it over and thought about it some more and chewed it over, and then I realized, oh, this is a much more complex subject than it appears. I mean, just ask Katie Hill. So, um, where were you coming from with the question? Well, first of all, let's... Uh, let our listeners know who Katie Hill is. Uh, Katie Hill is a first-term congressman from California who uh, was part of the 2018 Blue Wave, um, and she won a congressional seat uh, that was uh, held by a Republican. Uh, and in fact, the GOP incumbent, uh, who she beat, is considering running for her seat. And the reason why um, her seat is open is because she just resigned. Why did she resign? She resigned because um, her uh, is he is he is he her ex-husband or is he her soon-to-be ex-husband? No, it, it is definitely ex-husband. Okay, her ex, her ex-husband, uh, essentially, went on a campaign of revenge porn, uh, grabbed some pictures of Congressman Hill uh, engaging in uh, some type of. I haven't seen the pictures, nor have I. Uh, follow the story to know what, what, uh, and I'm not sure the listeners care, 
but some kind of sexual activity was depicted in these pictures. Uh, she was with naked in them. Woman. With another woman and a man, from what I understand, but I could be wrong. Um, yeah, that, that uh, was a. She's, uh, she she is openly she's openly bisexual. Um, and uh, the biggest issue isn't necessarily the sexual relationship because she's a single woman and she can do what she wants. The issue is that she had it with a subordinate staffer. And uh, that's a no-no in politics. Um, now, the question you asked me is whether they're entitled to a private life. And the answer is yes, like every other celebrity, they're entitled to a private life. And they're also entitled to live their life the way they choose. I don't I don't pass moral judgment on anybody. Um, uh, everybody's wired differently. Everybody loves differently. Uh, everybody has different tastes and uh, attractions. And as I said before, this is the 21st century, not the 19th century. Um, her problem is that... Uh, she had sex with a with a uh, junior staffer, um, and that's just not something that a congressman can do. Uh, I, I'm I continue to be shocked at the double standard. You have um, the congressman from Minnesota uh, who clearly. Uh, in a photograph was kidding around and, and, and showed his hands uh, hovering over a woman's breast and he had to resign in shame uh, for that picture but you have the President of the United States admittedly having sex with a porn star and paying her to be silent and uh He's still in office, and his lawyer's in jail. I, 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 I'm, I'm astounded. I'm astounded by the double standard. Um, but um, this okay. is an unusual he, situation. He, he's spot on. It's a revenge porn. That. It's a revenge porn issue. Right. Here's what I'm appalled at, though. Um, this young lady um, decided to take the high road and say, okay, you guys, you're one. You know, I quit. Right. Right. But uh, what about um, uh, the, the two uh, men Chris Collins of New York State and Duncan Hunter of San Diego um, that, you know, basically have done far worse things. Um, I, I, I think Duncan Hunter is under indictment, but he's still voting. He's basically 
thumbing his nose and and saying, screw all of you, right? Because I'm, they have no I'm shape. just going to keep on. Sorry? They, they just have no shame. Um, right. I, I'll tell you. Okay. I, I, do you do you watch do you watch Bill Maher's program on Friday night? Uh, Political. No. What's it called? Real time. Real time. Uh, Bill Maher uh, is is solidly uh, supportive of the Democratic Party, but he calls them out a lot. And his biggest issue with them is why they cave into things like this. Um, why the Republicans uh, are able to um, put up a wall and uh, fight it out uh, and refuse uh, to give in, uh, almost like uh, Clinton did. Uh, he'd like the Democrats, as to, to use his words, to grow a set. And I kind of agree with him. I don't, the, the rush, the rush to do the right thing, um, even if it's not good for the country, uh, is a problem for him, and it's a problem for me. Now, having said that, um, it's a personal choice. Uh, she's embarrassed. She doesn't think she can um, represent her district effectively anymore, and that's certainly a good reason to resign. Uh, the The question you asked me, though, are they entitled to a private life, or can they have a private life? And the answer is yes to the first, and maybe to the second. Uh, what I would suggest to you is that, that as to the second, you ought not do stupid things. Um, and I, and I, I want to get back to what I said earlier about Clinton. Um, and we've discussed this before, you and I. My problem with Bill Clinton, aside from the fact that he had sex with a a uh, woman half his age in the White House, um, and she was a junior staffer, and it's very similar if you think about it, because um, it was consensual like this one is. It's a very similar situation. Um, Clinton did this even though he knew there was a special prosecutor uh, investigating Whitewater that the Republicans hated him, that they wanted him out of office, and they were looking for dirt on him, and he did this anyway. And my feeling about uh, young Katie is the same thing. Um, you just won an election. You know right from wrong. Uh, you've got a husband who hates you, or an ex-husband who hates you, and is out to get you. And you do what you did, whether you have a right to do it or not, um, and you allow those who are out to get you to have something on you to get you with. And I just think people in, in her situation 
should make better choices. Oh, um, indeed. <laughs> you know, so, I, I, so, I, I looked at the uh, story and I went, um, well, it's unfair that she's being uh, hounded absolutely. out of uh, office. But, boy, absolutely. that was a stupid decision. <laughs> ter- ter- terribly stupid. Uh, uh, by the way, um, you know, this is a legal program. <laughs> I don't think we've discussed the law at all, other than uh, my book depicting uh, uh, how the civil justice system would handle a, um, a clergy abuse case in the civil courts. But, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, there's a legal issue involved in in uh, both this case and your question, and um, when this happened, the Daily Beast uh, got these photographs from her ex-husband and uh, put them in the newspaper. Uh, they got a letter from Congressman Hill's lawyers. And the lawyers in this letter said, I'm going to quote it a little bit, but it said the California Penal Code makes it a criminal offense to, quote, intentionally distribute the image of the intimate body part or parts of another identifiable person, unquote, and then said that a court would easily determine that the law was violated when the Daily Mail published these photographs. Now, what they're talking about is the 2013 law, mainly um, for celebrities in California, but uh, the California legislature passed a law called um, in lay to, to the lay community a, a revenge porn law, and they added mm-hmm. it to their list of cyber cyber crimes. Uh, it's actually called something like the non-consensual pornography law, and essentially, as a result of this 2013 law, the California Penal Code. Uh, creates a misdemeanor, a crime, similar to um, invasion of privacy, but not exactly the same. Invasion of privacy, uh, a defendant who is engaged, perhaps, or or has uh, a relationship with a person, privately or secretly uh, records the other person having sex or or naked, uh, what have you. Um, in, in revenge porn, um, the victim, in this case, Congressman Hill, can know about the recording, consent to the photographs, but because she understands understands that the images 
would remain private, the person distributing those images without her consent are essentially guilty of uh, the misdemeanor of revenge porn. It's a relatively new offense out there. I don't know how many states have it, but California is one of them. And it's often charged in situations like this one where a romantic relationship ends poorly and someone's out for revenge. Um, There are specific uh, criteria for these. And again, you could argue that not only the ex-husband has culpability under this statute, but so might the Daily Beast. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that uh, uh, newspapers are subject only to libel and slander laws, and libel has a very high standard. It'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, a newspaper who disseminates this kind of content knowing that one of the criteria, by the way, for committing the crime is that the person who has um, been the victim of it suffers serious emotional distress. I don't think anybody could deny that Congressman Hill suffered serious emotional distress. It also requires that the person who disseminates the information or the photos uh, knew or should have known that the person would suffer serious emotional distress. I don't think there can be any doubt that the paper knew they were going to cause her emotional harm. Uh, I don't think there can be any doubt that the ex-husband knew that they were going to cause emotional harm. So I think in both instances, you might see uh, potentially some criminal charges resulting from this. I I have to admit that I I didn't um, uh, dive deep into this story. Um, But um, what, what I read was that the photographs were published on a uh, far-right blog. And Correct. I don't, yeah, I, I don't really think of the uh, Daily Beast as far-right. Do you? No, it's not, but, it, but it, picked up, it picked up the photographs and put them in the paper. Uh, and, and I think anybody that, that did that, uh, that grabbed the photos from the ex-husband and ran with them um, has some potential. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying if you read the law the way I do, uh, it's pretty clear that um, uh, the photographs are exactly what they're talking about, A, and B, um, after you've done that, um, or or as you're making a decision to post them, 
and by the way, the 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 law really isn't related directed at newspaper publications. It's directed at posting them on the internet. Right. Uh, that's why it's a that's why it's a cyber crime. But but I I don't see the difference if if the newspaper, whether it has a print edition or a uh, internet edition. Uh, I, I don't think it, it shields them from liability under the act unless some California lawyer uh, knows of some exception that shields uh, the press from this applying to them. But um, Newer should have known that the distribution of the image will cause the person serious emotional distress. I don't see how it's possible that either the right-wing publication or the Daily Beast could not have known that this would cause Congressman Hill emotional distress. And then the next requirement is that the person actually suffers serious emotional distress. I don't think anybody can dispute that she did. Um, Right. It requires you to intentionally distribute the image. I don't think there's any doubt that all three of the uh, people and or businesses we're talking about intentionally distributed the image. Um, there is one criteria here in the statute that makes it, that relates it to the ex-husband rather than the two outside um, media companies, and that is there's a requirement that there's an understanding between you and the person who is uh, in possession of the image of the photos that they would remain private. Now, there's no understanding between Congressman Hill and the two newspapers, clearly. Of course not. But but, uh, on the other hand, I would think that if you're a responsible journalist... You would know that uh, you would understand, to use the work language of the statute, you would understand that the person depicted in the image does not want that image made public. And I think, uh, to your original question, the right of privacy, uh, which is the global issue that we're talking about here, this isn't the invasion of privacy statute. It's the revenge porn statute, but it's the same. It's part of the same group of statutes here in California, and I, I think there's a place where you cross the line, and this crosses the line, in my opinion. I don't see. I don't see the newsworthiness of seeing Congressman Hill naked or having sex in a photo. I don't see why the public needs to see that and why a responsible news source would take an ex-husband's salacious revenge porn and put it in the, on the internet or in, in the newspapers. And I I think their behavior is deplorable. I'm in total agreement with you. Hey, I'm uh... Looking at the clock, and I have to warn you, 
that um, I have reset the clock so we've got a little more time. Um, okay. Let's talk about your books. Okay. Give us the uh, latest update. What are they about and where can people buy them? Well, as I indicated earlier when we were discussing uh, clergy abuse, um, Betrayal of Faith is my first novel. Uh, it, it was written uh, as a bucket list item. Uh, I handled a couple of cases against the Catholic Church, uh, encountered uh, a cover-up, uh, extreme resistance, obstruction, um, the failure to, dis to disclose uh, prior instances of misconduct by the priest involved, uh, a sealed file from, the er from an earlier incident, um, and it felt like I was fighting with the CIA. So I always said I would write a book about what it felt like. Uh, so uh, later on in my career, I wrote the novel, and I created a fictional organization within the church, uh, a clandestine organization that um, handles these kinds of matters uh, quietly, efficiently, and by any means possible. And it's a very evil organization. I did not name the Catholic Church as the church. I simply called it the church. Um, and I, I depicted essentially how the civil justice system handles cases like this and what it felt like as a lawyer, uh, trying to fight with these people and make them tell the truth. Uh, it's a very interesting novel. Um, it has solid reviews. Uh, most people uh, who have read it uh, have enjoyed it. There are some people who, who found it to be, um, I don't know, a little too disturbing for them. Um, some people who don't like uh, uh, sensitive and uh, sexual topics uh, might not like my book, but uh, if you like legal thrillers, if you like John Grissom, if you like Steve Martini, if you like Richard North Patterson, if you like Scott Turow, I, I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy Betrayal of Faith. And it's successor novels. Now the interesting news is that I am republishing all of my novels in order at a discounted uh, price uh, what what they call in the business a relaunch so Betrayal of Faith is coming out uh, in early November um, at 99 cents so anybody who Want to read a good legal thriller? Um, I believe can afford ninety nine cents. Uh, if you can't, call me, and I'll give you a money back guarantee if you don't like the book. I'll refund your ninety nine cents. 
So that's that's the first that's the first book. Now, um, the what caused me to write Betrayal of Faith is the behavior of the church pissed me off. And while while my clients got even in court and got a a, a solid result in the case, uh, I've always been angry and mystified by their behavior. Why do they tolerate this behavior? Why do they cover it up? Why do they keep these priests active in the priesthood? Why do they transfer a priest instead of defrocking him? Uh, The boys in my case uh, were molested in one town and four boys were molested before them in another town. Had they not covered up the prior incident, settled it, sealed the file, permitted the priest to escape criminal prosecution, nobody would have been molested ever again by this predator. Yet, they did all of what I just said, and two more kids became his victims. And they've done this over and over and over again throughout the years. Uh, My case, uh, the case I handled was in the mid to late 80s. That's almost 40 years ago now. And yet I have colleagues and friends who have made a career out of handling these cases and are handling them today. Why are you still handling priest abuse cases almost 50, 60 years after the initial cases were made public? Uh, It boggles my mind. Now, you know, we started this conversation with the fact that there's a shortage of priests. And there probably is, but I, I, I don't see that as an excuse for um, maintaining a criminal sex abuser and putting him in a position where he can molest more children. And that's what the church has done. And the church can't deny this because it's a matter of record. That is their MO. That's what they do. So the book is about uh, those kinds of things and and how the legal system uh, handles those kinds of cases and how a smart, sharp, uh, aggressive lawyer represents his client. The next thing that pissed me off was the 2016 election. Um, And as... uh, our friend Mr. Trump uh, began to insult minorities and demand that his opponent be locked up and uh, various other choice uh, pieces of rhetoric that I found offensive. I said to myself, oh my God, what if he wins? What if if a bigot 
becomes President of the United States. And during the 2016 presidential campaign, I wrote Betrayal of Justice. Uh, And it's about a bigoted president who uh, wants to uh, rid America of all non-white people. And his favorite target is the Muslim population. Excuse my phone in the background. Um, And the um, president makes it his um, mission to uh, deport all Muslims. As fate would have it, a young woman uh, gets involved in an investigation of a white supremacist who, uh, in support of the bigoted president's election, uh, is accused of bombing a mosque, and uh, she wants to help the police investigate it, and instead, while following him around, witnesses his murder. She runs to give him aid, and the police show up and arrest her for murder. Uh, her uh, parents are beside themselves. They ask the imam for a recommendation of a lawyer, and the lawyer who represents her is the same lawyer who represented the kids in Betrayal of Faith, Zachary Blake, the hero of my novels. Um, And uh, Zachary takes up her representation not only against um, the Dearborn police, the Dearborn, Michigan police, but ends up having to take on the President of the United States as well. Um, Book three is a book called Betrayal in Blue, and it is also a book that has white supremacy um, as an issue, but it it also takes on the issue of of a, uh, a larger, more arrogant police uh, force uh, going to battle with a small town uh, northern Michigan police force and some uh, police on police jealousy uh, and it's quite an interesting novel and it, it has interesting trial scenes um, the trial takes place in the northern Michigan town and it's the biggest trial that uh, this small town has ever seen. So it's quite an interesting novel. The the police captain who uh, uh, was essentially made famous in Betrayal of Justice becomes the accused and the defendant in Betrayal in Blue. Uh, And I think uh, any reader who likes the first two novels will love the third novel as well. Uh, The fourth novel, which is, uh, uh, those are the three novels, by the way, that are going to be relaunched. The fourth novel that will be launched following a rather rapid-paced relaunch of the first three, I would probably guess we're looking at 
um, all three being released before the end of the year, um, and the fourth to be released at the beginning of 2020. But Betrayal in Black, my fourth novel, is the story of an innocent uh, black man being uh, stopped by a white cop in a white neighborhood uh, because the cop believes that he resembles uh, someone who robbed a Burger King. And the uh, police officer pulls him over, thinking that he and his passenger resemble these two male Burger King robbers. And when he gets to the window, he encounters a middle-aged man, not a teenager, not someone in his 20s like the Burger King robbers. And not just a middle-aged man, but a middle-aged man, his wife and his two small children, a four-year-old toddler and a two-year-old baby. And instead of walking away, he gets into an altercation with the driver and ends up shooting him and killing him. Um, And it's uh, the story of a uh, traffic stop gone wrong and uh, poses the question uh, of whether this white fictional downriver Michigan town uh, has uh, an unusual uh, and solo racial event or whether there's an institutional racism problem in this town. The book uh, Again, like the first book and the second one, more so than the third, uh, depicts how uh, a uh, racially sensitive uh, white cop on black citizen shooting would be handled in both the civil and criminal courts. Uh, it's kind of, um, uh, if, if the listeners have read The Hate You Give or seen the movie, um, it, it it has similar themes to it. By the way, the Hate You Give is a is an outstanding book, and I recommend it to uh, our audience. Um, uh, this book, though, in addition to the to the compelling racial um, and societal issues that The Hate You Give uh, presents, this book also presents uh, the legal system in its glory, uh, how, it would, how it effectively handles the criminal case, how it effectively handles the civil case, how a good lawyer makes all the difference in the world, and how... Um, white citizens, black citizens can uh, might approach this, these kinds of issues. So those are the, well, those really, are the four those are the I, four I really enjoyed um, Betrayal in Black. Yeah, okay. I have to confess I cheated and <laughs> read an early uh, early copy 
Um, it's a wonderful book. Oh, you didn't, you didn't, it, you didn't cheat. I sent it to you. Right. Okay. That's not. So, that's not cheating. Uh, if officially, you read the office I. Permission. Right. Officially, I didn't cheat. Um, I I really like. Uh, all of uh, all of the books. Mark is a very fine writer. I, I've noticed this about uh, attorneys. Uh, I that they, they uh, when they decide to write books, they're always very very fine books. Don't know why it is because most of the. Uh, most of the stuff they uh, they write and mail to people is just gibberish. But when it comes to books, they're actually quite good. I didn't even get a giggle from that comment. Uh, I I I was trying to think of a response. The the. the you know, it's funny that you you, you raise the issue of uh, of attorneys writing, and and you're right. Um, there are a decent number of legal writers out there. The one thing I would say, as a reader of legal thrillers, and I'm certainly not going to sit here and criticize any of my fellow authors. Um, I'm a novice at this. Uh, Guys like uh, John Grissom and Scott Turow have been doing this for years. But the one thing I will say about legal thrillers in general is that I often read a uh, a novel uh, that has a legal theme in it, and I always find something in in a book that I find factually or legally incorrect that that fiction, that telling a story, uh, that um, I don't know what's the, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, the, oh, the, the the story takes uh, precedent over the legal accuracy of what you're telling, and for me, uh, being legally accurate um, is important. Now, I've done the same thing. There are some things that I've written that couldn't happen in real life. I won't disclose them here because it would ruin some of my novels. But but uh, there is, I guess there's a requirement to embellish a story uh, by uh, fracturing the law a little bit. But for the most part, uh, we're talking about Betrayal in Black now. Uh, the way Betrayal in Black is told is, uh, let's put it this way, this is not a book that inaccurately portrays how the legal system would handle a case like this. Um, and one of the things that was very interesting about writing the book was I don't sit down and write a book 
knowing how it's going to come out. I, it, it kind of flows as I start, and sometimes it ends up differently than I planned it. Um, a Betrayal in Black is one of those books. Um, and when I started the book, I had a, an idea of what I wanted to write about, but I had no idea uh, where the topic would take me, and I'm very pleased with where the topic took me. Uh, I think the novel uh, very, very uh, accurately and in a compelling manner uh, takes the reader through the process of the shooting, the criminal uh, prosecution, the civil case, and the conclusion of the civil case in a very dramatic fashion, and I think people will like the book very much. And uh, apparently... Uh, you as a reader agree with me, right? Absolutely. Hey, I'm looking at the clock. We're uh, we're running over, but uh, hey, it's not the first time. Um, I, I've just got two more questions for you. Um, <laughs> hopefully, uh, that they're not. Uh, huge time-consuming questions. Um, In fact, I got them from you. Trump goes to the World Series and gets booed with chance of lock him up. Appropriate or disrespectful? Now, I I, I saw this um, on the news this morning. And my first reaction was to just laugh, 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 laugh. Serves him right. You know, uh, he cheered on his crowds in uh, 2015, you know, when, when they started the lock her up chant, you know, He'd stand there proud, smiling, you know. Uh, and and then I thought, no, you know, uh, th- this is somewhat disrespectful. I might hate the man, but um, to disrespect the office it is not really such a great idea. Um, what, what do you think, Mark? Well, this this is not a legal issue, obviously, but, but you asked me a question. Uh, is it appropriate or disrespectful? That was right. the question you asked me. And the answer yes. is yes. It was appropriate and disrespectful. Um, here's my problem. Uh, my problem is that you get what you pay for. And uh, while while I agree with with the issue that you raised about disrespecting the office of the presidency, uh, I don't think that's what the fans were doing. I watched the game. 
I watched the incident, and uh, Trump lost Washington, D.C. by 97% of the vote. Um, now, I don't think everybody in the stadium uh, was uh, part of the 97%. Um, I think there were a lot of political people there and probably um, people from the uh, Maryland suburbs, etc. But um, this is a man who called Baltimore the sister city of Washington, D.C., a rat-infested hole. Uh, He disrespected um, Representative Cummings uh, and the city. He's disrespected his political opponents. He's disrespected citizens, especially minority citizens. And sometimes you reap what you sow. Uh, I don't think booing him or criticizing him is disrespectful to the office of the presidency. I think he's pretty disrespectful of the office of the presidency. Um, And the other thing I would say is that um, the notion that um, the office was disrespected by this uh, is a false premise. Um, I, I don't think we've, in my lifetime, ever seen a president like this. Uh, we could we could certainly agree that Bill Clinton disrespected the office. We could certainly agree that Richard Nixon disrespected the office. Um, but I've never seen anybody disrespect not only the office but the citizens of the United States as this man has. So uh, I think the answer to your question is yes. It was um, inappropriate, but uh, what was the word? What was it? Uh, uh, appropriate appropriate disrespectful. disrespectful. <laughs> or how about appropriately disrespectful? Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I like it. Okay, Mark. We're um flat out of time here. Um we will uh, pick this up uh next week if that's okay with you. Okay with me? <laughs> um, <laughs> there's lots more uh, questions I have for you. <laughs> so, um, Mark, I really want to thank you for uh, taking time out to uh, talk to us tonight. It's been delightful. I, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I always enjoy it, Simon. Okay. My pleasure. Well, this is Simon Parrott wishing everyone a happy, healthy, and safe week. We'll be back again next Monday, 
same time, same channel, or uh, should I say, same back time, same back channel. Till then, goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>